Welcome to MuggleCast 373. I'm Andrew. I am Eric. I'm Micah. We're joined by one of our patrons this week, Karen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah, you're podcasting from Maryland today. Yes, I am. Well, originally Maryland. Now I'm in Delaware. Oh, Delaware. Sorry. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) My B. Screwing up the tri-state area. I should know. I grew up in New Jersey, after all. Anyway, it's nice to have you here, and thanks for your longtime support on Patreon. We've got a big show today. Again, we're going to be talking about Order of the Phoenix. Coming up this week, actually, is the 15th anniversary of the book being published. So I actually want to talk a little bit about the midnight release parties and where we were. Were, were you at one, Karen? Uh, no, I, uh, I think I was lame because I was burned with Goblet of Fire. And so I made sure I reserved it, but then I couldn't get there until like the next day. But then after I got the book, I wasn't worth any help at home. I just stayed glued till I finished it. (laughs) What do you mean burned with Goblet of Fire? What happened? Uh, well, I started reading, uh, three of them were out and then, uh, I didn't know that you had to reserve Goblet of Fire. So I went to like four bookstores in a row when it came (laughs) out and got pretty much laughed at for not (laughs) reserving it. But it has a happy ending. I actually ended up walking into one of those like wizards or educational kind of stores and it was just mm-hmm. on display at the register like it was no big deal. Oh, nice. And after being laughed at, I tentatively was like, can I buy that? And they said, yeah, sure. It's a store. And so then I knew. <laughs> yes, this is a place of business. Yeah, so then I knew I had to, you know, be a little more on the ball going forward. That's funny. So you, so you read the first three books but didn't realize how big the Harry Potter series was at that time, I guess? I think it's my – when I first started reading it, I was in middle school. And I think it was my middle school self so involved in this world not thinking – like I knew it was popular, but I didn't think about how – what that meant that, you know, you know, other people would want to go and get a book as soon as it was released because the other three were so easily ready for me when I started. Yeah. You should have uh, found one of those people who reserved like five copies and just (laughs) taken one and ran away. I was reliving the story last night and realized that two of the bookstores that laughed at me are no longer in business. Mm -hmm. There you <laughs> go. <Jokes> on them. <laughs> Karma. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's that's funny. Thanks for sharing that. So let's get your fandom ID in one breath. Please tell us your favorite book, movie, your Hogwarts house, your Ilvermorny house, and your Patronus. Book and movie: Half Blood Prince, Hogwarts house, Slytherin, Ilvermorny house, Horned Serpent, and Manx Cat. Manx Cat. Yes, they're fierce. Apparently, like a minx. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. A lot of cats. But you were telling us you're a dog walker, so I feel like it should have been a dog. I know. I was actually very bummed. But I think a lot of them are cats, aren't they? But yeah, yeah. It's like it's like 49% cat and then 38% weasel species. And then, like, <laughs> and then birds. A couple of majestic like horses, and that's the entire Pottermore right. Patronus availability. J.K. Rowling's got a thing for cats, evidently, and yet she has a dog. What gives? I don't know. Gives Joe. So anyway, like I said, it is uh, 15 years this week. It was June 21st on the summer solstice that Order of the Phoenix was published. I attended a midnight release party 
in my hometown with a few friends. And I actually still have, I brought a digital camera with me and (laughs) (laughs) I took some pictures, which I still have on my computer. (laughs) And uh, I I tweeted out a couple of them. Uh, It's it's really crazy just to see all the fever for a particular Harry Potter book and seeing the old computers at Barnes & Noble. It truly was so long ago. And we asked on Twitter, where were you for the midnight release party? Ben said, my parents had to pick up the book for me because I had to go to a birthday party at which my friend got the book book as a gift. Some people were really young. Chris said, I went to a party but didn't take any pictures because I was, one, eight years old, <laughs> and two, an idiot. But you're eight years old. Why would you take pictures? That's okay. Aww. And then Luca replied, I was one year old. Wow. <laughs> Oh, my golly. I feel old. And what I like about that, too, is we're talking about pictures, right? Cell phones wouldn't have been really mainstream in 2003, would they? No, no. of course not. Yeah. No. Yeah. See, these are talking about yeah. real camera photos here, not the nonsense you take on your iPhone. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember not having cell phones because I remember having to or uh, kind of talk with my dad about where I was going to meet him. We were at the... Uh, the the Oak Park um, celebration where they turned all the stores into Diagon Alley uh, the first year that they had done that uh, for the f- Book 5 release here in Chicago. This was my first time in Chicago was for Book 5 uh, and attending this party. I uh, was like uh, – I helped run the costume contest because MuggleNet had a, a presence there and – um, it, it was really, really cool, but I remember having to say like, okay, 9 PM, we're going to meet inside Flourish and Blots, which is the, whatever the, <laughs> the magic tree bookstore I think was Flourish and Blots, or I'll meet you outside, uh, the Leaky Cauldron, which was Cafe Winbury. Um, you know, you had to be there. You had to absolutely say what time, because there's 10,000 people in the street. You, you know, there's, there's no way to communicate without cell phones. So it was just so ridiculously fun, but having to coordinate where you were going to be at a certain time to actually show up to meet in public, let me just say, I'm glad that cell phones are a thing now. Yeah. It is funny how, like, our parents let us stay out past midnight to go get a book. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, there's got to be stories out there of kids being like, all right, I'm going out. I'll be back after midnight. And the parent being like, what do you mean after midnight? What is this? <laughs> and and the kid's like, oh, I'm going to go buy a new Harry Potter book. And the parent, there's got to be stories of parents not believing this. Right. <laughs> sure, you're going out to get Harry Potter, whatever that means. Harry Potter. Huh? Yeah. Just a little sketchy. little sketchy. Uh, there were plenty of parents with their kids, though. That was a cool thing to see at the uh, book yeah. five release party I went to. Yeah, you know, my um, I believe my mom or dad walked with me at for Goblet of Fire in 2000, but Order of the Phoenix, I guess my mom dropped us off in the minivan because yeah. we were all... We I was dropped off for Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. My friend had a party and her mom, like, carted us all to the bookstore at the same time. And that was... We all loaded up, like, piled onto each other and then we <laughs> loaded back in with all the books as we went back. Has there been that kind of... That's great. That's great. You know, sense of just hey there's a new book coming out midnight release party since harry potter because to me that's really the only series i can think of or just book in general that created that kind of excitement and and people coming together twilight the later twilights i know breaking dawn was really big twilight was really big by the time 
Breaking Dawn came out. I went to a midnight release party for Breaking Dawn. What do they do at those parties for? Because <laughs> um, I know what they do at a Harry Potter party, but what do they do at a Twilight party? We sucked like, each other's blood. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I I can't remember. It was like that came out in two thousand eight, so that was ten years ago now too. But I think oh, wow. the third Mockingjay book probably had midnight release parties too. Yeah. And and maybe the the Divergent finale, but yeah, other than that. That, that's it. It's been a long time since a good old fashioned midnight release party for a book, other than Cursed Child. Were there midnight releases for Comey's book, James Comey's book? <laughs> Anybody know? I don't think so. I just feel like you don't really have like that book that's like so anticipated, and the people who are anticipating it um, are going to stand in line at a bookstore right. at midnight, and the bookstores themselves are going to justify or be able to justify being up that late. Especially these days with uh, a lot of the bookstores shuttered and Amazon promising you'll get it the day it comes out. You know, I yeah. think many people are kind of just looking to alternative means. It's crazy when you think about it because now is it is it Borders who has closed most of their locations? Borders oh. is completely oh. gone. Yeah, they're yeah. gone. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, Walden so. Books also laughed at me. So. Wow. Oh, well, <laughs> you showed them, didn't you? <laughs> but yeah that's Walden Books there was one in my my local mall that was where I actually bought the first four Harry Potter books in paperback mm-hmm. my first set mm-hmm. was at a Walden Books but yeah this is this is really the series of our of our time I was gonna not even our generation because uh, you just don't think there's uh, inevitably there will be something else that comes along but just the fact that this series and is just able to bring so many different people together from around the world. The anticipation of a book being released, it just, yeah. you know, movie releases is one thing, right? People go all the time um, for those midnight premieres, but this was such a large scale and, and just was so highly anticipated every single time. It's just, to me, it's mind blowing to think that a book series captivated that many people. Yeah. That's a good point. Maybe they'll start moving the book release parties to 7 p.m. the night before, like they do with movies <laughs> these days. <laughs> We're all getting old. Who wants to be out past midnight? I sure don't. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we have some news to get to, and then we'll jump back to Order of the Phoenix. But first, a Patreon update. Yes. Mugs are closed, everybody. Karen, do we have your mug order? Yes, you do. Okay, thank you. Um, We've announced it for weeks, and now the order form for choosing which mug that you would like, if you are one of our lovely patrons, is now closed. And the final results are what I really want to talk about here. We have, uh, in the end, about 47%, nope, 67% Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw turnout. So very, very pleased. Very, very thrilled. We have over 300 Ravenclaw mugs that are going to be going out to people, 200 Hufflepuff, and 104 Slytherin, about 161 Gryffindor, too. So um, thank you to everybody for helping us out. Yeah, the ratio is just something I continue to be surprised by. I was going to say maybe we should take a general listener poll to find out what everybody's houses are, but maybe that's a good enough barometer of the general yeah i mean it's it's more than one third ravenclaw which is really cool um because ravenclaws are smart and they support us on patreon (laughs) all right moving on to some news now um congrats to harry potter and the cursed child they won a bunch of tony's best play best direction best scenic design best costume design best lighting design best sound design all the design so um looks like did any of the actors win no 
No. Wow. Okay. But isn't that what was um, predicted, though, I think, for the most part? I think even you said on the the last episode, Eric, that the anticipation wouldn't be for the actors or the actresses to walk away with any of these awards. It would most likely be in the categories that we see here. Yeah, Um, it's true. I I did kind of want Jamie Parker for Best Actor as as Harry Potter because I really loved his work, but... I'm glad to see that everyone else sees what we saw, which is that the production value of of the play is just unsurpassed. Best persistent scream actually went to SpongeBob mm-hmm. in the SpongeBob musical. Oh darn! Anthony Boyle was robbed. <laughs> I, I was really sure he was going to win that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to know on on Twitter how do they divvy up these awards? Does part one get three and part two get three? How does this shake out? <laughs> You'll have to write to the Tonys and find out, I guess. But by the way, um, Jamie Parker did a little bit with Josh Groban in the middle of the show in which Jamie Parker was hairy and he had the scar and the cloak and the hair tousled and all that. And he also had a scar on his hand, which I think says I must not tell lies. And it made me wonder, is that always on his hand in the play? Because I don't think anybody has noticed that before. You're going to have to go again. (laughs) I need front row seats and binoculars this time. (laughs) But I thought that was surprising that they would keep a scar on him like that on the back of his hand. Mm. Or it was some sort of Tony's joke and it was just too hard to make out. I think think because it's TV, they knew that they... You know, be zooming in all the way. Maybe they did it for that. It's it's incredible attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. Just also wanted to mention that Universal Orlando has announced a new nighttime water show um, in the lagoon at Universal Studios, Florida. That's the that's the park next to Islands of Adventure, and um, it's going to have Harry Potter as part of the show. And I thought that was kind of significant because. Universal hasn't had Harry Potter included in its parade or other nighttime events until now. At least Universal Orlando. Um, Universal Japan has been doing some cool stuff like that, but not Orlando. So that's a nice update, I thought, and um, good reason for people to go back. You're going to be able to see some Harry Potter stuff during this nighttime water show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's jump into our main discussion this week, Micah. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned earlier on in the show, we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of Order of the Phoenix, and we really structured all of our main discussions this month around Order of the Phoenix and what happens in that book, characters, and we wanted to focus this week on main events, places maybe that we've gone to for the first time, and uh, obviously Order of the Phoenix has a ton of events that happen. So there's no way that we could go through every single one. Uh, But we pulled out a select few. We also asked on uh, Patreon what our patrons thought were some of the top moments uh, in the fifth book. So I think we could just start out though. You know, there's so many things that come to mind and, you know, we've noted several of them here. We go to Grimmauld Place there's ministry interference at Hogwarts, the formation of Dumbledore's army, going to St. Mungo's. There's so many great lines. But is there anything that stands out besides that? And and we will dedicate, I think it's important to say also, right, um, Andrew, that we will dedicate an entire episode to the Department of Mysteries 
and the prophecy because that's one thing that we won't really be talking about this week. Yeah. I did want to mention that because that that is absolutely like the epic conclusion to this, the longest Harry Potter book is I just remember basically just tearing through the book and getting to the point where the battle of uh, the Department of Mysteries was happening and just thinking to myself every chapter, you know, between Dumbledore and Voldemort fighting and Harry being possessed and all the de- uh um, DA members and, uh, uh, sorry, Order of the Phoenix members showing up. I just remember thinking to myself, man, even just these last six chapters or so could be an entire movie. I just think, how are they going to adapt this? Because I remember reading it, you know, after when this book came out, two of the movies were out. And we knew that this was one day going to be a movie. And I kind of remember reading this book with that in mind. And I just remember thinking, my God, the Department of uh, the Battle... The Department of Mysteries is going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the biggest moments is just the general transition into a darker story. Um, it, it, it really is getting serious by Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> um, and I think it was immensely satisfying for the whole world, the whole wizarding world, to understand by the end of the book that Voldemort is truly back. I mean, that's a big turning point for the entire population. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the way that Goblet of Fire ends. Now you know that, as you said, things are getting serious and there's no turning back. Yeah. Serious. Oh. <laughs> They're not getting serious at the end because... Bellatrix is getting dead. serious. Bellatrix got serious. <laughs> got serious. So let's let's start out with, with Grimold Place. You know, we're introduced to... Uh, uh, the home of Sirius Black and and his family, and if I'm remembering correctly, it's our first introduction to a wizarding home that isn't the burrow, and mm. it's pretty much the complete opposite of of the burrow. <laughs> it's not warm, it's not welcoming, it's not inviting, and uh, it's, it's not clean. Not clean. Is it a little unsurprising um, or surprising, I guess, that Sirius grew up in in this type of uh, environment? You know, since the incident, uh, Creature just hasn't been cleaning up to his usual standards. I wonder, based on the description that we get in Order of the Phoenix when we get to Grimmauld Place, what bits of it would have, you know, been a lot cleaner in 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 its heyday? You know, when when Sirius was growing up here, um, because it had fallen to at least a decade of neglect. Sirius, the only living you know relative uh, in Azkaban and creature just kind of unable to perform the regular cleaning duties yeah. that he normally would. Um, I wonder if, you know, I wonder if it was one of those places where it's still dark. There's not a lot of natural light. But there's kind of a respectability of like, oh, this is just a, a prim and proper rich jerk, you mm. know's house um, versus the the rundown kind of aspect that we get when we are introduced. I mean, it takes them a long time. In fact, most of book five to they're, they're just cleaning. They're just cleaning out the rooms and, and kind of getting rid of it. You're very right. Like this has not been lived in. This has not been loved in the way the burrow has and And it's kind of scary i think it's jk rowling's way of showing readers and harry that not all wizarding 
abodes are as pleasant as the burrow. I think yeah. it would be easy to assume that because, ah, wizards, magic, everything is clean and okay and wonderful inside our homes where we're sheltered, where we're safe. Um, but that's not the case with um, Grimwald Place. This is a, a storied location that isn't taken care of because it has a broken family, <laughs> unlike the Weasleys living inside of it. Um, Perhaps like maybe it's more like Malfoy Manor when it was all in its heyday. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm imagining but it's still it's a little bit more central london than right. malfoy manor if the malfoys were more city folk yeah then that's where they would have lived i just imagine walberga black going down the street like shopping <laughs> it's, it's this <laughs> city folk person um shopping for skulls of muggles or something yeah yeah i actually um have the order of the phoenix in french and they used Grimwall Place as the cover. What? That's awesome. So the back part where it gives you the synopsis is actually the hallway. And you see like three order members talking to each other in hushed tones. And you can imagine it's when, uh, you know, Harry's like cleaning and he looks out and he sees people are coming and going. And it's all the portraits lined up in Grimwall Place. And all the portraits have their arms crossed, like looking very stern and disapproving of what is going on around them. That's the other thing about Grimmauld Place. There's this feeling of never quite being alone. They're they're packing uh, a bunch of order members in, and it's not it's not quite the place doesn't really suit them. It, it's just the closest thing they had. It's the safest option, the safest bet. But there's never a chance to really fully relax you've got snape coming and going directly from voldemort's inner circle you've got um all of these portraits that either either whether it's the the one of mrs black which is screaming anytime you get near it or say something she doesn't like or you know the portraits of some of the family members like phineas nigelis who are just disagreeable or you know not there's there's never really a feeling that you're safe uh or comfortable right in Grimmauld and and i think that kind of leads into the question here was this truly the safest place for the order to be headquartered and sirius has a quote where he says the ideal headquarters of course my father put every security measure known to wizard kind on it when he lived here it's unplottable so muggles could never come and call as if they'd have wanted to, and now Dumbledore's added his protection, you'd be hard put to find a safer house anywhere. And that sounds all well and good, but you know, clearly Sirius believes them safe from the outside. But do he and the Order underestimate the threats that are within? And I think that goes, Eric, to what you were just talking about, of that sense of always being watched. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean... They were right. It was a safe location, but um, trusting Creature was a big mistake. As we Well, yelling at Creature was a big mistake. Yeah. Well, yelling at him and trusting that he would betray them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the the imposing nature of Grimald Place in general and Dumbledore's sort of decision that Sirius Black can't leave you know bringing Sirius to his childhood home Sirius is happy to contribute he has a line somewhere in the book like oh it was just about all that I could contribute to the order um it it directly contributes to his 
lack of well-being throughout the book, his depression, what eventually makes Harry think that he would have ventured out and allows Voldemort to, you know, trick him, essentially. Sirius is a prisoner in his own home, and this Grimald place is very much his prison throughout the entire book. And, and that's a big part of the book is how Sirius feels just cooped up the way that Harry does uh, at, at Privet Drive. Um, it's not a friendly place to be unable to leave. Yeah. And also he had just spent how many years in Azkaban? Yeah. And get, knowing he was innocent got him out of Azkaban, but somehow you feel like he hates this place more. Yeah. He hates it more because it's filled with bad memories and he's stuck in it. He's He can't get out. I mean, and that's something that's brought up throughout the book that that Sirius does want to get out and he tries and he does have a couple of opportunities, but right. Um, ultimately it's, it's for his own good that he stays there. And I think we as readers completely understand that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if Sirius doesn't. Yeah. And uh, we also got the brief mention of when the whole cleaning of Grimmel place is going on a Horcrux. And <laughs> it was very quick, very brief, but typical, J.K. Rowling style to just weave it in there. And and I remember very well once uh, Half-Blood Prince came out, how quickly people went back to this moment in in Order of the Phoenix and determined that, in fact, this locket was one of Voldemort's Mm, horcruxes. I'll read the... um... I'll read the excerpt here. There was a musical box that emitted a faintly sinister, tinkling tune Then, when wound, and they all found themselves becoming curiously weak and sleepy until Ginny had the sense to slam the lid shut, and a heavy locket that none of them could open. Dot, 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 dot. That's it. There's no There's no more about it. It's just... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Cut anything a out. heavy locket that none of them could open. Yeah. Dot, if dot, only dot. they just destroyed it right there. I mean, why keep around a object that keeps makes you weak and sleepy well the the music box was the one that made them weak and sleepy but but they did all seem to take turns trying to open the locket we know you need parcel tongue though Mm. so Mm. but uh i think the just the general importance of grimald place uh for future uh books particularly deathly hallows and knowing that grimald place after sirius's death belongs to harry and it it becomes a safe haven uh, for them uh, for a good part of the seventh book. Yeah, um, these protections that Sirius's father or Dumbledore put on it um, really do provide a, a safe home away from home, as it were. Yep. I do remember just being generally very impressed by this idea J.K. Rowling came up with, a place that people couldn't see that squeezed in between two other row homes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like the reveal. Cool. Yeah, that's a cool yeah. effect in the in the film version, mm-hmm. um, seeing it work yeah. that way. And it's now in Orlando, if you want to check it out. Oh, yeah. And creature, Creatures in the Window. Yes. Mm-hmm. You can't walk in, though. Uh, not yet. We're not wizards. Not yet. <laughs> Is it also at the studio tour in London? No. No, it's not. Though I did, um, when I got to go to the Order of the Phoenix set for MuggleNet, we did walk through Grimwald Place, and it was very dusty. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah. It was very authentic. Intentionally, yeah. <laughs> I stole some of that dust. I still have it bottled. Oh. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, and we've obviously spent a lot of time uh, on and a lot of episodes talking about Umbridge. 
but I don't think we could talk about Order of the Phoenix without talking about the Ministry's interference at Hogwarts. And Mm -hmm. some questions I don't know that we've discussed related to Umbridge and just her role at Hogwarts. What do we think her credentials are for being able to take over the Defense Against the Dark Arts post? Because you know, putting aside the fact that the Ministry wants her there and this is an opening, what you know, what's on her resume? She has two legs, two arms. Uh, she's breathing. Um, there's not a lot of requirements for Defense Against the Dark Arts positions at this point. Actually, you don't even need to be alive. A ghost could teach it. Yeah, um, I, I I think that's the point. Everything about Umbridge is unfair. There's the, she. It was unfair that she replaced Dumbledore. It was un, unfair that she became the DADA teacher. Unfair that she added all these rules. Um, it, it created the Inquisitorial Squad. Um, I just it, I think the point is that she doesn't have any credentials. She is a talented wizard. Uh, she does hold her own in a couple of occasions. Um, it doesn't necessarily work out for the best, but I'm thinking about in the Forbidden Forest when she's facing the centaur, she's able to fight them a little bit before they close in. Um, but yeah, I I don't think she has any credentials. And if she taught a proper DADA class, I'm not sure she would be able to do it. I just find, I mean, I, I think we're meant to find Umbridge just so ridiculously offensive. There's nothing wrong with her teaching style and certain methods of, you know, basing a lot of what the curriculum is on the textbook. I've had, you know, plenty of college classes where we're basically going through the textbook as, you know, that's our course is today we're going through this. But it's her unwillingness to think outside the book, to think outside the box, to have sort of, you know, practical lessons. Defense Against the Dark Arts is a class which benefits from actually moving your wand, actually doing these things. And, you know, through the book, the students and Harry are are very quick to point out what the problem is with, with Umbridge and Defense Against the Dark Arts. She could very well have uh, excelled at teaching, say, History of Magic if she wanted to just stick to the book. Um, you know, it's the Defense Against the Dark Arts. It's the getting up and going. It's the secret, sinister fact and reality that the Ministry does not want... Uh, the students to be able to defend themselves, that's really the evil sort of soul of Umbridge and the ministry's interference well, at Hogwarts. Is it that they don't want them to be able to defend themselves or they don't want them to be able to form something like Dumbledore's army and rebel against the ministry? Yeah. I think that's more of their concern than well, they're one and the same. learning the actual spell. I yeah, agree, I think that's yeah. A fair point. yeah. I think um, also the text that is chosen is a ministry-approved text that's just terrible Hermione reads through it and even questions a chapter which is funny because you know Hermione's the authority on whether or not a book is (laughs) decent (laughs) and all the the rest of the class looks at her like wow she she didn't just you know absorb all this information she actually sits and questions things while she's reading and just shows how smart Hermione is as she goes through different stuff. But I think Umbridge's main qualification was she was going to tell Fudge anything and everything at, yeah. Right. She would, she would do whatever Fudge wanted her to do at the school. And she had a similar way of thinking. I just wonder, 
you know, do we fault Dumbledore for allowing this? He really had no choice. Yeah, he had no choice. But what is he doing to protect his students? Uh, <laughs> the only way he could have prevented all of this is if he somehow unequivocally proved that Voldemort was a was yeah. back sooner. Uh-huh. Like if he was able to do it at the end of Goblet of Fire. Right. But So do we think it was always Fudge's and Umbridge's intention for her to become headmistress? I do. Do you think you do? Mm-hmm. Why? Because the, because they're so threatened by Dumbledore. They want they are already trying to take pretty much every credibility from him. They like take his Order of Merlin. They take everything else from him. I think it was just a matter of time just to get Dumbledore removed. Yeah. So it was sort of like a slow transition into preparing us for the worst. By us, I mean Hogwarts students and faculty. Essentially. I mean, when... Yeah. Uh, Voldemort full comes full force and they're finally on board not much really changes at the ministry enough to make us feel safer <laughs> yeah yeah no that's definitely a, a fair point so Umbridge is just getting in at the ground level as defense against the dark arts professor but ultimately the goal is for her to take over Hogwarts yeah well, Just there's scary. only like two decrees in between those steps, I think. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That makes her, it's like, it's, it's, she's like, I think, you know, they start issuing that she's the high inquisitor. And then I think it's like a few degree decrees later, she's in charge. I think that's mm-hmm. important too. The, the rise of totalitarian rule at Hogwarts is it grows exponentially the fact that, you know, earlier in the book we're seeing five or six or seven educational decrees before the big ones really come by, and then all of a sudden it's boom, boom. You know, she's now mostly in control, and now she's completely in control. And one thing I noticed, there's not as many educational decrees in the book as there are in the movies. <laughs> I think the movies took a lot more liberty there. <laughs> when I was rereading, I was actually thinking about that, too. Like, the whole the whole entrance to the Great Hall is just... Floor to ceiling educational decrees. And in the book, it's like maybe 10, maybe 10. And half of the ones in the movies are about dress code and, you know, kissing in public. And it just right. sounds like, you know, mean school rules, which is not the point I think J.K. Rowling was making in the book with the decrees. The decrees in the books are a lot more serious. But can you blame Mina Lima for just going all out? Oh, I know. I want all of them in my house, in my library. (laughs) Actually, another kind of funny set story while I was there. Of course, they had all these educational decrees hanging up. And the onset publicist, like at the end of the day, she goes to us. All right. So we're going to give each of you guys one of these educational decrees. And, you know, it's like a freaking awesome movie prop. So I freak out. I'm like, oh, my God, really? And she looks at me. She's like, no. Oh, damn it. Wow, that's that's why a would, burn right there. I know. Why did you say that? And then I refused to write a set report, so I showed them. <laughs> <laughs> but I like your next point here, um, Micah. If do these decrees expose weaknesses in Dumbledore's leadership? Is he not writing a tight enough ship at Hogwarts? And actually, yes. I mean, I I think I brought this up on the show several months ago because. I was at a a party here in Chicago and somebody was like, you know, Dumbledore really, (laughs) a lot of problems at Hogwarts and Dumbledore doesn't fix any of them. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. And I think I brought it up here on MuggleCast. It it, certainly 
Dumbledore's relaxed rules add a lot of charm to Hogwarts, but these would never fly in a normal school. Take, for example, Peeves. I mean, he causes all this havoc, and that is just something that seems wildly inappropriate for a school. Yeah. Or or even some of the bullying that goes on. It's It, it just seems way out of line. I think Dumbledore has a slightly different view as to what purpose Hogwarts has for the world in general. I think Fudge knows, too, that, like, Hogwarts is more than a school. Hogwarts is a um, defensible, you know, there's battlements. It also houses a number of the world's greatest witches and wizards in its staff. So for Dumbledore, I'm trying to think of, like, when Umbridge tries to ban Trelawney um, and she's sacking her and wants her out of the castle, but Dumbledore's like, I eh, can't do that. Um, you know, because Hogwarts is a home to people. And I think a lot of the more lax restrictions that Dumbledore allows, such as the existence of Peeves, is because he sees the castle as a home to the spirits as well. Like, Hogwarts is Peeves' home, and Hogwarts is Trelawney's home, and that's essentially what he tells Umbridge. So a lot of it has to do with, I think, if he were running just a school, sure, that's, you know, he'd be removed by the Board of Governors instantly. But because it's magic and because he's running sort of the Wizarding World's entire everyone's home at some point, you know, in Europe at least, uh, yeah. maybe there's some different philosophies going on there. Mm. Yeah. It- I, I thought, Eric, you were going to say it's Hogwarts is is more than a school. It's a w- magical experience. It's 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 an all encompassing, um, Wizarding World experience. Like you get more than teaching at the school. Well, I think having ghosts there fulfills that need. But there are certainly parts of Hogwarts that I would prefer weren't there, like the secret chamber with the giant killer snake. Um, you know, I mean, the staircases mm-hmm. that move. Y- yeah yeah the crazy the trick staircase i'm not fond of that one always gets me i always forget it's there um yeah what the hell that's dangerous (laughs) you can break an ankle exactly remember when i had dumbledore call in new year's resolutions that that's what that was inspired by all these problems going on there yeah yeah but i think the the educational decrees that umbridge pushes through are specifically designed to undermine dumbledore's power and are specifically designed like i don't know does does somebody go around saying uh Umbridge is right, or these educational degrees actually have some sense to them. I'm sure there's like a couple people who are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, while they're, what were we going to well, say, Michael? Let's just take a look. Number 22, right? In the event of the current headmaster, which is Dumbledore, being a- unable to provide a candidate for a teaching post, the ministry should select an appropriate person. Now, this may seem a little bit out there to some, but to others, I don't know that there's, uh, there's something here, right? Because- <laughs> yeah. If you look at, first of all, and we know the the position is cursed, but all the Defense Against the Dark Arts professors that have come through in the last four years, at least that we've seen, are maybe with the exception of, of Quirrell initially, are suspect, right? Uh-huh. How much really research is Dumbledore doing on hiring people when you bring in a fraud like Lockhart? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then- right. Lupin is a werewolf, so that's a danger just by itself uh, of of putting children, uh, you know, in in that type of situation. And then you have an imposter in Mad Eye Moody <laughs> slash Barty Crouch Jr. And as a result right. of that, a student ends up dying at the end of the year. 
um, not to mention the Chamber of Secrets. And, and so there's a lot of stuff that's going on at this school that you would maybe if you're a parent, you would say, oh, okay, hold on a second. Maybe we need the ministry. Maybe we need the Board of Governors to step in here and and make sure that exactly there's there's some order here and and there's other professors that you could point to that you could say well should they really be in that position Trelawney is one of them Hagrid is another yeah you know are they qualified to teach these subjects are are they are they any good at them no the whole, and the if, whole yeah if, if if you're Harry and Ron and Hermione you're wondering well can we really trust Snape Dumbledore keeps saying we can trust him but look at these other teachers that he hires and apparently trust for the school. Yeah, the only reason Trelawney is at Hogwarts at all is because one time she made the the prophecy that changed the course <laughs> of wizarding history. That's the only reason. He's given her – I mean how many students' heads has she filled with nonsense and you know maybe she's inspired some people to go on and actually be able to do divination but she's mostly a fraud and he only keeps her there because Hogwarts is a safe place for her. It's like what he tells Slughorn in book six – uh, that you know, there's safety at Hogwarts, and he can keep him safe if if Horace will come to the castle. And it's the same reason he gives Snape a job because Snape is has crucial strategic value towards the the Second Wizarding War, and that's why Hagrid's there, and that's why you know all of these decisions Dumbledore is making has very little to do with educational standards and more to do with keeping you know your pawns and your chess pieces very close in the castle. All good points. Yeah, so definitely I think, you know, from a ministry perspective, of course, you know, the Wizarding World must be thinking, yeah, we need we need somebody to step in. And I think a fair amount of adults probably know that the position or, or have a feeling that that job is cursed. And if you're looking for a job, you probably don't want to take that one. That's what I was about to say, Eric. It, like, I used to teach high school down in Maryland oh. for five years, and um, I I would not apply for this job, no matter if it was the subject I taught or what have you after seeing what happened to the people who had the post before me. What subject did you teach, Karen? I taught history and psychology. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I actually did ask my psych students which house they were in (laughs) on day one so that I could kind of start to glean things. But then I also had the fifth category of kids who said, I don't know it house I'm in. And then I told them I would tell them what house they were in by the end of the (laughs) course. (laughs) All right, let's move on. Yeah. So these are actually tied together. Many could make the argument, right? So the implementation of these educational decrees and Umbridge taking over at Hogwarts uh, or just her general presence there, uh, the formation of Dumbledore's army. Yeah. And really to me, what this is, uh, all about is the bringing together and unifying mostly all of the houses. Uh, obviously, Slytherin is the lone exception, but I was wondering, and, and maybe you guys know, I know, Andrew, you're rereading, but did Hermione intentionally not invite any Slytherins to their first meeting? I don't remember specific her specifically saying anything, but it makes sense. They can't be trusted in this scenario. I mean, they're they're up against Umbridge. They cannot possibly risk her finding out. So, um, and like, are they friendly enough with any Slytherins to welcome them in? And I, Dumbledore's army kind of, it was kind of a snowball effect, right? They, you know, somebody told another person, and this person told that friend. 
Yeah. Slytherins kind of operate separately from the other houses. And given that it's the Ravenclaws who betray them, <laughs> poor, poor Cho, uh, Cho Chang's friend. Um, yeah. And yet most of you are Ravenclaws. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but yeah, I mean, I think it's very much a desire to keep it as, as close and small as possible. Um, if somebody had a Slytherin best friend, that'd be great. You could tell them, but nobody who found out about it apparently has a Slytherin best friend. Yeah. So, and I just think that this showed that Harry had much more support uh, than he initially thought he did. And it really pushed him to become a leader Mm -hmm. and removed him from the isolation that he was experiencing, you know, just, I mean, throughout the entire book. And I think this kind of brought him back into the Harry that we knew in previous books and, and maybe even beyond that. He grew a lot uh, from from these experiences. I, I completely agree. The book five is very much in Harry's head. And it is sort of this call to action that, as you said, Micah, brings him back. And he's the Harry that we know and love. And he just, you know, that that moment in the book and in the the film adaptation where people are talking about the amazing things he's done. Uh, and he's, you know, flattered because like he just doesn't always have that perception of what people must think he is or does, or usually it's negative. Usually it's always the air of Slytherin. Clearly um, all these students are attacked, but people really come to his support. They come to his side and he's able to kind of, realize, well, I I do have something to offer. And I think that's really, really important, especially for where he's at in his life in this year. Yeah. And Dumbledore's army gives us our very first introduction to the Room of Requirement. Amazing. Which we know serves multiple purposes down the road in both Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. And uh, it's actually Dobby, not Neville, uh, who introduces <laughs> us to it in the books and Dumbledore references it, though not by name, um, when he is apparently looking to go take a piss. <laughs> and he comes across it by accident. He didn't even realize that this room exists within Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he still doesn't even after that. Yeah, he just that- thought, oh, wow, it's a room. It's a bathroom that magically appears when I got to pee. Yeah. It's like he he hints at it to Harry. He like winks at Harry, I think after he says that, or it could be misremembering. Um, my my concern is you have to walk past it like three times uh, to get it to open. So he must have really been pacing. <laughs> gotta pee, gotta pee, gotta pee, gotta pee, gotta pee. I don't know where to go, so I'm just gonna pace back and forth. And this well, remember, floor. isn't it on the Marauders map? When they first, uh, Fred and George first show it to Harry, that Dumbledore just, just paces a lot back and forth in his office. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's just a thinker. <laughs> yeah. He's probably got an ensuite. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do you think the room is a little just too convenient? And, and not only that, but talking about Dumbledore, do you really think he doesn't know about it? I mean, I, I would almost say that he probably provided a bit of a watchful eye over a lot of what was going on here. He, there's nothing that went on at that school that he didn't know about. I don't know. I know. It, is, it is weird that he is such a powerful wizard. Like, he kicks ass at the end of Order of the Phoenix, and yet he doesn't know about things like the Room of Requirement. such a unique and helpful room. <laughs> but nobody knew about the Chamber of Secrets. 
right? I mean, do yeah. we, unless you want to accuse Dumbledore of knowing about the Chamber of Secrets. I mean, he has known about it for 50 years at the point of book two because it was clearly existing once it was opened the first time and, and Moaning Myrtle died. Like, those teachers in five decades did not, after having proof, empirical proof that the Chamber of Secrets was a thing, did not locate it successfully. And is that neglect? You know, is that is that neglectful of them? But I mean, also, the Marauders didn't know about the rumor requirement. It doesn't show up on the map specifically because they never found out about it. And they knew everything about the school, or so they thought. And Dumbledore also didn't know about Sirius and them becoming Animagi, apparently. Otherwise, he would have looked for that or barred the school from, you know, Sirius being able to do that, to get into the school the way that he did by being the dog. So there are things that Dumbledore doesn't know. There are limits to his knowledge. There are things about Hogwarts that are happening right under his nose that he doesn't know about. Karen, do you buy it? I don't think he knew fully about it because of what Draco is able to do in the sixth book and mend the vanishing cabinet. I feel like, and the ditum was in there. Mm. So it's almost like, I don't know, maybe he does know what it is, but Dumbledore is very content with his life and he doesn't have these paranoid needs. Like, I need to search and see what someone's using this room for. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that just is a, a comment on Dumbledore in that, you know, we, we joke about what he needs the room of requirement for, but maybe he's very happy at Hogwarts, generally speaking. And so... You know, he doesn't have to do anything sneaky. He's the headmaster. He can do whatever he wants at Hogwarts. And just kind of tying into, though, that point of whether or not he knew, the first meeting of Dumbledore's army unofficially is at the Hogshead. And we know that Aberforth is the bartender there. Do we really believe that he never relayed that information to his brother? Well, it was Mundungus, too, uh, was there spying on Harry during the incident. But did Aberforth know that? Well, Aberforth didn't know Dung was there because Dung has been banned uh, from the... Uh, I just remember this from the from reading the character stuff on Mundungus last week. But I think Dumbledore... Mundungus is the reason Dumbledore finds out about Harry and them meeting. But in the future, Dumbledore does rely on Aberforth as well to spy on the group. Mm-hmm. I, I would think that Aberforth did tell Albus. Why wouldn't he? He's He's got to help out his brother from time to time like that. Sometimes they're not speaking, but... He just sends a goat with a little message in its mouth. Aww. <laughs> I would have loved that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, before we move on to uh, St. Mungo's, there's one question that kind of ties into the last two areas that we talked about is... Where are the students' parents in all this? Because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on at Hogwarts, not different from other years, I guess, but there's actual physical torture of students that are happening. Yeah. There are pretty crazy educational decrees that are being passed. And we do hear from time to time people talking about, oh, wasn't sure if my parents going to let me come back this year, but... Where are they in all this? <laughs> They're just like bystanders. Well, maybe well, half they... of them have parents who work for the ministry. Yeah. So I think it's that fear of not wanting to question the ministry. But then you can argue it is your child that should take 
yeah. precedence over your job. But, you know, I think it's plays into just showing how much power the ministry really has sure. outside of Hogwarts. Sure. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think parents might trust the ministry and maybe the kids don't know any better. They don't realize maybe I should be telling my parents about this. Yeah. And they are some, young, we got to remember. And some parents are muggles. Um, and I think, right. too, that uh, this is a boarding school. You know, I, I guess how active are parents in general? You can you can owl your parents and, and say hello and write them and things like that. But for the most part, I mean, the kids are left to their own devices or people trust in the institution and don't ask questions, even when the going gets tough. Okay, so let's uh, talk about a place that I think all of us reading the series up to this point were eager to visit, and that was uh, St. Mungo's. I don't want to visit because it means I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, as a reader. Oh. Not you physically going there. I see, you. okay. <laughs> yeah. So probably for me the biggest thing in, in rereading through the couple of chapters that focused on St. Mungo's was, number one, we meet Augusta Longbottom after Long Last. Yeah. We've heard a lot about her in the previous books. And we also get to see Neville's parents, albeit very briefly. Mm-hmm. And this was really uh, emotional reading through it again. Yeah. Um, haven't having done it in a while. But let's start with Augusta. What were our initial impressions of her after having read these different um, passages about her in the first few books. I felt like I already knew her because of the Bogart scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and she was a supporter of Harry's, so I liked that about her. I think I think I had a good impression on her. She's doing her best trying to raise her grandson after this tragic accident to Neville's parents. Um, so yeah, I, I thought... Two thumbs up, Grandma. I like that she remembered all of Neville's friends, even though she hadn't met some of them. Yeah. Like, she knew Hermione. because So that just shows that when Neville talks about school, she's paying attention. And, you know, she's grateful that he has these nice friends in his house. Yeah, and I guess it shows that they talk. Neville kind of is is bashful, so it is nice to see that at home he might be a little more open. Yeah, and and she's very proud of of both her son and and her daughter in law, and that comes through uh, when she's talking with Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny. Mm. And Neville seems very embarrassed, which I think if we were in that situation, we probably would be as well, because you know he's been carrying around this secret of his own for a very long period of time and probably doesn't talk about it at all with anybody outside of his grandmother and about what Bellatrix did to his parents. Harry knows from Dumbledore, but uh, this was a very tough moment, I think, going back and kind of reading through it again. Yeah. Yeah. This whole St. Mungo scene is also kind of just a general, (laughs) kind of like a throwback slash greatest hits like just not as if as if seeing <laughs> Augusta Longbottom and Neville and his parents there wasn't enough. We also saw Lockhart, 
Yeah. And that was just really surprising. <laughs> and again, it, something that's not in the movie at all. Yeah. Well, right. I, I think, too, that this, this book is so vast and different as well in many challenging ways that it's important to realize what has come before. Like, I'm so glad Lockhart shows up randomly in this book because it it really shows how the events of the past are all tied in. Like, yes, this is the same world. This really happened and everything is going to come to a head, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's important to have those little reminders of what has come before, I think, when you're in the middle of some vast, you know, epic. But, yeah. It's also a lighthearted moment when you're dealing with so much with Harry's dream and then you have Neville's parents and you're worried about Mr. Weasley being attacked. And then it was, hey, remember that toothy guy that liked to sign autographs all the time? Like it was an enjoyable moment that took me out of the stressful parts of the story. I'm so glad you mentioned that, too, because the attack on Mr. Weasley's why we're here at uh, St. Mungo's. And, you know, that's a hugely traumatic event for Harry because he witnesses it and he is the one possessing the snake. Like he believes he attacked Mr. Weasley. He expects to have blood running down his his lips and mouth when he wakes up from that dream. And, And it's hugely traumatic for Harry. And everyone, including McGonagall, is kind of giving him an extra birth a little bit. Uh, there as a result of that like this is as dark as this book gets when harry himself nearly kills his best friend's dad in a dark corridor in the middle of the evening Mm. so a little bit of lockhart never hurt anybody right and he's uh despite his uh memory issues seemingly having a great time with this healer (laughs) who's all about him and he's signing (laughs) autographs and you know, and it, it to your point, Karen, it kind of also after this whole moment with Neville when Lockhart comes back into the scene and, you know, he's like, well, these things aren't going to all sign themselves. You know, it, it kind of <laughs> provides a little bit of levity to it, whereas, you know, they've just gone through a very, very it's, – it's a tough moment for Neville. Yeah. I reread the chapter last night and that was the one time I chuckled was when he showed up and I was just like – Okay, I needed that. So, yeah. and as a reader, I think it's it's tough to watch this taking place through the trio's eyes because this is a very personal moment for Neville, and he's being exposed in a way. So it's it's just tough, and you you really feel for Neville, right? And I think it would have made a very powerful moment in the movie. Is I'm I'm almost disappointed that yeah. they they went the route that they did. I know there's that moment between Harry and Neville when they're in the room of requirement. They're looking at the photo of the order, and he kind of gives him, you know, the history of of what happened with Bellatrix. But this would have been, I think, a little bit better of a way to to do it. And um, not that we would need Lockhart back, but that obviously would be fun as well. Um, one other thing just on the long bottoms, though, is you know, the gum wrappers that yeah. his mom yeah. gives to him. I remember so many theories out there when we were going through and trying to figure out, was his mom passing information along to him like we know that neville keeps all of them but i think jk rowling inevitably debunked that but do you guys remember that at all yeah yeah Um, well it's i 
I don't. There's no reason why there should be a theory behind it. It's just like a sentimental moment. Well, I know why there's a theory, which is, I mean, Saint Mungo's. If you think about the people who we know contribute to Saint Mungo's, you have people like Lucius Malfoy, and they're so the 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 theory stems from this overall uneasy feeling that Saint Mungo's is perhaps not having witches and wizards' best interests at heart. Because if a former Death Eater um, or current Death Eater is the one bankrolling, and there's a couple of other people too who are like very suspicious and they're, you know, we see the minister is in Lucius's pocket and he's also contributing to the hospital. I think the question became whether Frank and Alice Longbottom were really as out of it as they were or are they prisoners? Are they trapped? You know, is Voldemort secretly controlling the hospital? Back in book five, we didn't know. And uh, that's where Wizarding World Press came in with the ultimate unofficial guide to the mysteries of Harry Potter. And I think they were one of the first people to propose that Alice Longbottom was actually sneaking messages to, to Neville through the gum wrappers. And unfortunately, you know, I would have loved for that to have been the case. Like if, if Alice and Frank are somehow suffering from like locked in syndrome uh, where there's, you know, their wits are really about them, but due to some curse that that Bellatrix, you know, threw on them, they can't get out of it. And and Neville is sort of slowly piecing together the mystery. It would have been ultimately a much more fulfilling and exciting and rewarding kind of subplot. And they're gum wrappers, though. I mean, <laughs> you don't have paper and pen. Nobody's going to give a mental patient all the paper and pen that they want. Pens are dangerous. Um, quills are especially dangerous so look it ended up not being true great um but it's definitely i remember that the it, it, it all comes in in research in close research like i never would have thought personally to question why lucius malfoy is donating to a hospital but i think it's a valid concern well like a lot of villains they gotta keep safe face they gotta look good in the public eye yeah take yeah. uh gus in breaking bad he was always very helpful for yeah, the community charitable. yeah yeah nice guy yeah. if he needs a favor he knows he has many options yeah, exactly you're making inroads it's a good look for you maybe it actually makes him feel good so we know that um harry and company make their way up to the fourth floor where they do run to neville his grandmother and augusta but there are many other floors within saint mungo's that probably would be interesting for us to explore and get to know a little bit more about. Uh, and I think, you know, as we mentioned, having the movie may have provided, having this in the movie may have provided us with that, but, you know, maybe we'll talk about the different floors at another time. Cause there's all different kinds of crazy stuff that, uh, that we could get into. There should be a but, floor uh, dedicated to defense against the dark arts teachers when they inevitably <laughs> fall to please their posts and need help. Yeah. And uh, so anything else here to say on, on St. Mungo's? I know, Eric, you were big on the Arthur Weasley attack and what comes of that. I mean, one thing to note is that Mr. Weasley does say that it didn't make it to the Daily Prophet. Surprise, surprise, that uh, a ministry official was attacked. Uh, that says something to me about the ministry not wanting to have that information get out. I, I love, and I think it's probably, isn't the chapter called Christmas on the Closed Ward? Um, yeah. You know, this idea that some Christmases are spent in a hospital with an ailing loved one. It's 
extremely important to have that represented, that very real life circumstance represented in a Harry Potter book. So for the people who've experienced Christmases at hospitals and anywhere other than in front of the the traditional fireplace, um, it's very bold of J.K. Rowling and very beautiful for J.K. Rowling to allow us as readers to experience some of these feelings as you go through book five. So I, I think in general, St. Mungo's, you know, and its presence and the people that we meet there and the time of year that we're here. And, you know, this book is kind of all about makeshift families and makeshift organizations of people bonding together. And this is just another way that they do it, you know, in illness when they're hoping that everybody gets better. Yeah. And it, it's not just Arthur. It, it is Neville and, and his parents and it is even Lockhart, you know, the the fact that you, you see the, the healer's response to Lockhart having guests and particularly <laughs> on Christmas, she notes that. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's a, it's a great point. If, there, if there's a time to visit somebody in the hospital, it's probably around the holidays. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. All right. Well, those are the biggest elements of Order of the Phoenix that we wanted to discuss besides the prophecy and the Department of Mysteries. We'll do that next week. Um, In bonus MuggleCast today, which will be posted exclusively on Patreon, we're going to talk about some notable lines from the series. We asked our patrons for help there. Sorry, from the book, from this particular book. Um, So we have some good ones to relive and uh, also in bonus MuggleCast, by the way, today, we're going to talk about uh, trailer speculation. There's already some trailer speculation heating up when the next one might cometh. So. For Fantastic Beast 2. Oh, I thought we were talking about for uh, Avengers 4. But we can <laughs> talk about Fantastic Beast. Sure. Or how about Incredibles 3? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 18 <laughs> years from now. I heard good things about Incredibles 2. It's amazing. It was pretty incredible. Ah. Micah. Uh, it was pretty uh, super. Uh, did you see it? Well done. Did you see it, Karen? I did not, but I can't wait. I'm so excited for it. Cool. We also uh, asked over on Patreon for our patrons to give us their top five moments from Order of the Phoenix and uh, had some good responses. As I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, there's only so much that we can get to in an episode, uh, and there are plenty other moments, I think, that would be worth talking about. Um, Erica Downing said, Dementors in Little Winging, Winging, uh, Formation of Dumbledore's Army, Bellatrix Killing Sirius, The Prophecy Being Read, and just Angsty Harry. Emily says, St. Mungo's, I'm a nurse, so I dig the medical magical stuff, the DA practices, Dumbledore's got style, the description of the fireworks by the Weasley twins, they're so talented, I must not tell lies, made me angry, but I loved that scene. Ew, why I why did you love it? That's a little ew. Nicole Smith uh says Order of the Phoenix is her favorite book, so she had trouble narrowing it down, but she loves it when McGonagall says, Have a biscuit, Potter. This is after Umbridge gives him detention and he goes storming off to McGonagall and she just gives him a biscuit. Uh the swamp and Flitwick refusing to help and all the other teachers. Luna, everything, particularly the scene on the train where we first meet her and the lion hat, and you're just as sane as I am. All of the Department of Mysteries and St. Mungo's. Yeah, the teachers siding with the students while Hogwarts was in chaos was pretty great. Just also very satisfying. Like, there's so many times in Order of the Phoenix where 
you feel hopeless. You feel so sad that the school is falling apart in this way, thanks to Umbridge in the ministry. And these lighter moments where you see McGonagall pushing back against Umbridge or the other teachers for that matter, um, or just not helping her (laughs) with all the mayhem that's going on. It's just really fun. Victor Chan says, without naming five moments, just chapter 37 of Order of the Phoenix is one of the greatest chapters from any Harry Potter book, not because of the prophecy. As a kid, I didn't realize how well written this chapter was. Now that I'm older, I love the moment when Dumbledore says feeling pain from loss is nothing to be ashamed about, and that suffering proves that Harry is still a man. It's in this moment that you see why Harry is different from Voldemort. Voldemort could never have loved anyone enough to feel the pain and grief of losing them. Yeah. And this is driven home a couple times in this book, like when Dumbledore starts explaining why Harry needs to stay at Privet Drive. His house is protected with love. Melissa Fitterer says, Harry's smashing things in Dumbledore's office after Sirius's death. I agree. That was so great because Dumbledore is so calm and he's like, actually, I'm surprised you're not freaking out more. I'm surprised you're not attacking me. Melissa says, such a powerful scene where Harry is finally able to express all the anger, hurt, sad feelings he's had. She also says, Dumbledore and Voldemort's duel. I feel like that's the first time we get to see some seriously powerful magic, particularly from Dumbledore. Yeah, Dumbledore makes it look so easy, and oh, I have a line that we need to talk about in uh, Bonus cast. Just made a little note. Uh, she also says, Christmas at Grimald Place, and the scene where Umbridge inspects Professor McGonagall when Umbridge sits in on Harry's career advice meeting with McGonagall, and then finally, the initial DA meeting in the Hogshead. And take the last one, Karen. Sure, yeah. Serena Knight, uh... I love her first comment when McGonagall took four stunning spells to the chest and survived. This just showing that she is, you know, very tough and can pretty much do anything. Uh, when Peeves took over Fred and George's role, making Umbridge's reign at Hogwarts terrible. Uh, Christmas was serious. I remember that also. He was like the happiest you see him in the whole book because the house is full and it's very festive and he's singing wizard carols. Uh, four, when Mrs. Fig attacks Modungus with a big bag full of cat food. (laughs) 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 And uh, five, when Dumbledore explains that he had kept information from Harry because he had grown to love him, even though that moment made her cry. Mm. Aww. Awesome. Well, thanks to our patrons who contributed answers there over at patreon.com slash mugglecast. We frequently post questions there pretty much every week asking for people to sound off on the topic that we're discussing on a forthcoming episode so um it's one of the benefits getting your feedback read here on the show yeah speaking of feedback erica it's time for some quizage yes it's time for quizage last week's question was as follows according to jkr who would win in a fight between crookshanks and mrs norris This is actually something somebody tweeted to her in September of 2016. It was literally, who would win in a fight, Crookshanks or Mrs. Norris? And J.K. Rowling actually replied and said, I quote, It would be brutal and very close, but Crookshanks' nasal ancestry would bring him out on top. We were discussing last week uh, whether Mrs. Norris was also a nasal. Um, These squibs that we know of between Mrs. Fig and Mr. Filch 
do tend to love their cat companions. But uh, apparently it's only Crookshanks between those two who's an easel, and that would give him the fighting edge. So mm. congratulations to everyone who guessed it was Crookshanks who beat Mrs. Norris or would. Um, the correct w- uh, the winners for last week are Jess W., Sarah, Evan, Kelly, Max, Robin, Jennifer, Shauna, another Sarah, Yasmin, Abby Cat, Andrew, Mandy, Jason, and Inthia. Thank Yay, you. I won. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> Andrew. You got it. Um, mm. And that one was not in the books. I thought that would make it harder, but it's just a Twitter search away. We do play this game also over 50, on... It's also 50-50. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> it's a 50-50 ch- yeah. chance of yes. getting it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, too. But um, you know what? I'm going to find out. We'll do a, a, a wall of shame or something for all the people who who's, uh, replied us and said Mrs. Norris because they I bless them for taking the 50-50 shot uh, anyway without doing any research. But um, we do play this game over on Twitter. Uh, all you have to do to play is tweet at us at MogoCast and say the answer to this week's Quizzage question. This week's Quizzage question, by the way, this week is uh, who was the last member of Dumbledore's army to sign up while in the Hogshead? Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Eric, for that. Um, By the way, if you have any feedback about today's episode, maybe you want to sound off on something, feel free to contact us on the website. We have a feedback form, or you can email mugglecast at gmail.com directly, or call us. We would love some voicemails, 1920-368-4453. That's 1920-3-MUGGLE. Speaking of the uh, Ministry of Magic... Of course, we know you have to dial magic to get into the uh, Ministry of Magic. <laughs> and our phone number used to be something, something, something magic, right? Yeah. And then, then we lost it. Yeah, it wasn't like somehow. one eight two zero twenty magic yeah, or yeah, some, yeah. something like that. Something like that, yeah. Oh, well. But um, yeah, so our new number is one nine two zero three muggle M-U-G-G-L-E. No C-A-S in the T. <laughs> Next week is our final Order of the Phoenix theme discussion for now. And actually, we'll have some news about um, what we're doing next. We'll, we'll share that news next week. It's a pretty big announcement, I think. Yeah. So we'll, we'll announce that next week. But anyway, next week, Order of the Phoenix, Department of Mysteries, and the Prophecy. We should all do our best Trelawney prophecy impressions. <laughs> oh, gosh. But wait, that's a book three thing. Yeah, but but since we learned the prophecy in this one, we should yeah, do it okay. here. All right. All right. Yeah. Karen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having thanks. you. Thanks. I had a great time. Awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. It was it was good having you on, and thanks for your support. And you did great. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Karen. Bye. 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 Bye.